Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new, having been released in the week of April 3rd through 7th, 2023, and the other one was released a couple of weeks prior, so that one I'm going to review last. But I'm going to review the movie that's probably going to be the biggest movie of the weekend of April 7th through April 9th, i.e. Easter weekend, 2023. The first movie I will be reviewing for you is the long-awaited Super Mario Brothers movie. And that's the official title of the film, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Why wasn't it called just Super Mario Brothers? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons is because of the movie that was titled Super Mario Brothers back in 1993. That's a film I saw actually on opening weekend. I was privileged enough to see it then. And man, I was not so privileged to actually see the movie because it was pretty bad. It was so bad, in fact, that Bob Hoskins, who played Mario in that film, denounced the film and also criticized the directors, and there were two of them, who didn't actually work in Hollywood after that. And it's and after seeing the film, it's not very hard to see why. What they did was they basically took what was a fun video game franchise and kind of turned it into something that it wasn't. A little bit like Blade Runner, I would probably say, or maybe Total Recall. And Mario Brothers and those kinds of movies just don't fit together. This Super Mario Brothers movie, which is completely animated, definitely gets, I think, the image as well as the tone of the Mario Brothers franchise correct. Not only from the original 1985 video game, as well as the previous incantations of the Mario Brothers, but also, probably most especially, some of its more 16-bit and 64-bit and so on incantations of the Mario Brothers mythos. In fact, as I was watching this film, I was reminded a lot of Mario 64 and Mario Galaxy and some of those other new-ish games. I'm not going to say newer games because Mario 64 came out in 1996, 27 years ago. To Gen Z, that's the Stone Age. But <laughs> to me, it's it's probably the, the newest game that... I played when I was regularly playing video games, whereas now I don't quite play as many. But it's great to see the Super Mario Brothers on the big screen as I believe they were meant to be seen, at least visually. So this Super Mario Brothers movie is not only fully animated and also very close to the original imaging of a lot of the Nintendo games, both old and new, but most especially newer, but it's also an origin story that tells the story of how two Brooklyn brothers named Mario and Luigi started their own plumbing business and then eventually followed a rabbit hole, or at least a sewer pipe, into the Mario Brothers world that we know as of now. And you would think that with a movie with the, the princess in it, Princess Peach, she would be the damsel in distress. And what I think some people will love and other people will hate is the fact that Mario is not rescuing the princess in this film. That is actually a plot development that I actually liked. And I also really liked how the Princess Peach was able to uh, hold her own and even show Mario a thing or two in terms of defending oneself. And that comes a little bit later in the film, but it's actually Mario who's rescuing Luigi because the two of them go down this sewer pipe into this world in which Bowser, the king of the Koopas, is terrorizing just about every good creature in there and trying to rule the world for himself, as you might expect. But as Mario and Luigi is go are going into this other dimension, they get separated, and Luigi is the one who's actually captured by Bowser. And there have been some people who have been disappointed that Luigi wasn't developed more as a character. I actually wasn't entirely disappointed by that. I actually think that... This Mario Brothers movie gets the Mario Brothers franchise, or at least the movie franchise, off to a good enough start so that the Mario Brothers can actually be developed into uh, further sequels. I think this is a great start 
for the Mario Brothers movie franchise. And at first, I was a little bit skeptical based on the people who did the voices of the characters here. I thought that Anya Taylor-Joy did a fine job as the voice of Princess Peach. And one of the things that I could appreciate about Anya Taylor-Joy voicing Princess Peach is I didn't really recognize that it was her. And I think one of the big reasons for that is she's been in a ton of films in which she's had the starring role. But actually, if you really think about it, she hasn't had a lot of lines in those other roles, but she doesn't really need to have a lot of lines, except maybe in her adaptation of Emma, which came out in 2020. But then again, I didn't see that film. But I was very skeptical of having Chris Pratt and Charlie Day be the voices of Mario and Luigi, respectively. And one of the things that that started this movie off was this Mario Brothers commercial that's in their native uh, Brooklyn, New York, where they have these exaggerated Italian accents like they do in Mario 64 and some of the other incantations of the Mario Brothers game. But then they cut from the commercial to Mario and Luigi themselves, and they have Brooklyn accents. I was a little disappointed by that because I thought, if you're going to have Mario and Luigi have an Italian accent, go with that, but why tease that in the very beginning? But regardless, when Chris Pratt and Charlie Day began speaking as Mario and Luigi, I began to forget that it was these two actors, especially Charlie Day with his iconic voice that a lot of people are familiar with from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I would have expected to recognize you know, their regular voices, but fortunately, I think they disguised their voices enough so that I forgot it was them who was doing the, uh, the voices. And I was expecting to be disappointed by Jack Black doing the voice of Bowser as well. And just because I think Jack Black has a bit more of a, an alto voice, maybe tenor alto, and I always thought of Bowser as having more of a, a bass voice, kind of like he does in the video games. But I do think that Jack Black did disguise his voice well enough so that I actually forgot that Jack Black did the voice of the character as well. But Jack Black does bring a lot of that tenacious D bravado to Bowser as well. In fact, there's there are a couple of scenes where he's playing the piano that I thought were very funny. And as much as I missed the original Nintendo voices doing the voices in these in this movie, I actually thought that the main cast, Chris Pratt, Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Day and Jack Black did more than a fine job. I think they did a very acceptable job. The only voices I thought were miscast were uh, the ones of Donkey Kong, who's voiced in this film by Seth Rogen, and Cranky Kong, who's voiced by Fred Armisen. Fred Armisen probably most especially. I would have expected Cranky Kong to have an old man's voice, and Fred Armisen kind of played him a little bit more high-pitched than he should have. And Donkey Kong being voiced by Seth Rogen, again, I love Seth Rogen. He's usually great in most of the films he does, but I I knew it was Seth Rogen from hearing him, and I... I Maybe it's just from playing the game before and being used to the voiceover artists who are mainly anonymous who do the voices of the characters. But again, I didn't think Seth Rogen's iconic voice fit with Donkey Kong. But with that said, I think that this was the Mario Brothers movie was a well-written script, which was written by Matthew Fogel. And I think at, in terms of storytelling, this is probably the best of the Illumination Studios films. I think it got the tone of the Mario Brothers correct. I think it brought a lot of really great Easter eggs as well as some dimensions and levels into this film that are very well represented here. And not only is this a film that I had an absolute blast seeing in theaters, but I would also probably buy this film on 4K and watch it at home. And I could probably watch this several times over. And I think that a lot of kids of many different ages, especially those who grew up playing Mario Brothers like me, 
won't be disappointed in this film as well. They might want to play it as opposed to just watch it. But I think for a film that you don't have any choice but to sit down and watch, there's enough here for an excellent film and a great start to what I think could be a lucrative and very appealing franchise, which is why I give the Super Mario Brothers movie my rating of a marginal knockout. The reason it's not a, a higher knockout, I think, is because... There were some draggy parts to the story, and I do think that Mario and Luigi themselves were a little bit bland and underdeveloped, but I think that this movie got a lot more right, especially visually, than it got wrong. I also would have liked to have seen Mario and Donkey Kong when they first meet, start off as enemies, which they don't really hear. They do start out battling one another, but I would have liked to have seen some throwbacks to Donkey Kong, which was one of the first video games which Mario, in which Mario was the hero. But overall, I think that the Super Mario Brothers movie impressed me and made me laugh a lot more than it disappointed me. And I think that the sequels are just going to expand upon what this Mario Brothers movie started. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Air. This is a film that is the true story that follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led Nike in its pursuit of the greatest athlete in the history of basketball, although they didn't quite know that at the time, Michael Jordan. This movie is directed by Ben Affleck, and this is his fifth effort as... Uh, a director, and his he's actually directed more great movies than bad. The only bad movie he really directed was Live By Night, which came out seven years ago, and I think Ben Affleck took a bit of a hiatus after that film failed critically and commercially. It wasn't a terrible film, but again, I think having Ben Affleck play the lead in that movie in addition to directing might have hindered the film a little bit. It also sort of hindered the films The Town and Argo, but those films already told great stories, especially Argo, which I think even though it won Best Picture, it is still underrated in a number of ways, but it is a hell of a film. And I think Air... um, has Ben Affleck acting in the film, but he's taken a back seat to some of the other lead actors in the film, including but not limited to Matt Damon, who plays Sonny Vaccaro, and Jason Bateman, who plays a co-worker by the name of Rob Strasser. They are two of the actors in this film who do an amazing job telling this story, uh, this, this true story about when Nike's basketball division was active back in 1984, but was not taken nearly as seriously or was as profitable as it is now. And Ben Affleck is very good at directing films that are based on true stories. Argo is definitely no exception to that rule. And Air, while not as amazing a film as Argo was, still lives very close, is probably Ben Affleck's second best film that he's directed to date. And yeah, it is a film about uh, corporate America and about winning, but hey, you know what? Monopolistic competition is a battlefield, and throughout this film, I was rooting for uh, Sonny Vaccaro, Matt Damon's character, uh, to win, especially since the odds were against Nike at the time. And the movie does tell you in the very beginning that at the time, the number one manufacturer and seller of athletic shoes, particularly basketball shoes in the United States was Converse. The second high, uh, best-selling shoe brand uh, for basketball shoes was Adidas and Nike lagged in third place. And at the time, 1984, 
Michael Jordan was a rookie, a very promising rookie, but he had just been signed to the Chicago Bulls as he was in the middle of being a college student and basketball star at North Carolina University. And Adidas, well, actually Converse and Adidas were both pursuing him, but Nike was the underdog in this respect. So in order to attract Michael Jordan to be Nike's spokesperson, they had to do a little bit more than just persuade him to join Nike. And according to his mother, Dolores Jordan, who in this movie is portrayed by Academy Award winner Viola Davis, Michael Jordan flat out did not want to uh, promote Nike. Why? It, it's not exactly specified. And Michael Jordan is kind of portrayed in this movie, <clears throat> by an actor by the name of Damian Delano Young, but Damian Delano Young, A, doesn't show his face, and is and B, is more like a stand-in. And there are scenes where Michael Jordan is there, but you don't see his face. And I think that was actually a pretty good move. I do feel kind of bad for Damian Delano Young as he plays technically a major role in this film, but you don't actually see his face. But I do think with a public figure like Michael Jordan, who... At the height of his fame and his success in the mid to late 90s was literally more recognized by people all over the world, including indigenous people who never watch TV. His face was more recognized than the president of the United States, literally. So for that reason, I think if you actually saw Damian Delano's Delano Young's face in this film, you would probably scrutinize it for not exactly being like Michael Jordan's. And I actually don't blame you. It was probably the trap into which the movie Spinning Gold fell, particularly where I was watching the film and the actors who played Donna Summer, Bill Withers, and Gladys Knight looked nothing like the original counterparts. So I I thought it was a good move, but what really made this film work was not only the sense of monopolistic competition tension, but also the razor-sharp dialogue that was written by Alex Convery. As a matter of fact, as I was listening to this dialogue being spoken by the likes of Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Jason Bateman, in addition to some other people, I was immediately reminded of Aaron Sorkin. And it does actually surprise me very much that not only was it not Aaron Sorkin, but Alex Convery has this movie and only this movie as his only writing credit for a movie to date. He hasn't written for anything else that IMDb gives him credit for writing. No short films, no video games, no commercials, nothing. So he co-produced this film and wrote it, and it is quite amazing that the film is this intelligent and this dynamic of a story. And just about everyone in this film acts incredibly well. Matt Damon does an amazing job as Sonny Vaccaro, although he does try to convince you that he's overweight. And while Matt Damon does definitely make some pains to convince people that he's not athletic in this film, I actually thought in the movie The Informant, which was directed by Steven Soderbergh, he looked more out of shape than he did in this film. But I guess in the movie The Informant, he he played a guy who worked for a, a food additive company, Archer Daniels Midland, and here he's, he's working for Nike, which is more of an athletic shoe company. So... I guess it would it would be expected that he'd be just a little bit more athletic. I don't exactly know. But I did mention Matt Damon and Jason Bateman a lot. And I also liked Ben Affleck in this film as Phil Knight, who was the co-founder and the CEO of Nike. And Ben Affleck, again, plays a supporting role, which I think is probably best for him in a movie where he's directing. But a lot of Ben Affleck's best movies are when either A, he's directing, but not always, B, when Kevin Smith is directing, and or C, when Matt Damon is either co-starring or has an appearance, like an un- like an uncredited cameo. And in scenes with him and ba- Matt Damon, th- those scenes are golden. But it's not just the three of them that are really good. Viola Davis plays a memorable role, what could have been a very small role, as Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores Jordan. 
Chris Tucker also has a really good role in this film as Howard White, who was the vice president of branding at Nike, who eventually became the vice president of Jordan branding at, at, at Nike. But there's also another um, killer performance in here by Matthew Mayer, who's probably the least recognizable names of the ones that I've mentioned. And Matthew Mayer plays Peter Moore, who is the engineer who created the Air Nike shoe, because the people at Nike eventually realized that it's not just any shoe that they had to sell to make Michael Jordan promote it. They had to create a shoe of their own. And that ended up being one of the greatest business decisions of all time. But Matthew Mayer, as Peter Moore, is definitely one of the least recognizable actors in this roster. And he's also probably one of the least visually appealing. But that says so much for how great he is in this movie. And while I've seen Matthew Mayer in many other movies... This is probably his best role since a movie he did last year called Funny Pages. And in Funny Pages, he played a very unlikable guy, but he played him so well. Here, he's a bit more likable, but he's also uh, a, a reclusive genius, which I think when he's designing the shoe and he's telling Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's character why he's designing it in a certain way, it's really probably some of the best uh, parts in this movie. So I was very impressed by Air. I think I've gone into why this movie has impressed me so much. It's not only very well acted, but it ha- it tells a great story. It really gets in- you into the, the killer dynamic of working in monopolistic competition in the United States, especially with a, an industry as cutthroat as sports gear. So Air gets my rating of a definite knockout. It is probably the best film to come out in 2023 so far. And while 2023 has a long way to go, I really hope that people remember this. I know I certainly will remember it come Oscar season in November, December, or January. That's coming up. But I was very impressed by Air, and Air certainly soars. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Chupa. This is a film that was released as a Netflix original on April 7th, 2023. So it is available for streaming if you still subscribe to Netflix, which hopefully you do. It's directed by Jonas Cuaron, who is a native of Mexico City. He's not actually that old. He's uh, 45 years, uh, excuse me, 41 years old, but already he's had a prolific career as a filmmaker. As a director, he's only directed two other feature films before this one. He directed Año Uña in 2007 and Desierto in 2015. But a lot of people will probably recognize his writing efforts more. He wrote the screenplay for Gravity, which won him a BAFTA award. But Chupa has him going back to his Mexican roots. And this film focuses on an American teenager of Mexican ancestry by the name of Alex, probably Alejandro, um, his full name. And I believe he is the first one in his family who was born in America. His mother is Mexican. I believe his father is too, although his father is deceased. But while visiting family, extended family in Mexico, teenage Alex gains an unlikely companion when he discovers a young chupacabra hiding in his grandpa's shed. To save the mythical creature, Alex and his cousins must embark on the adventure of a lifetime. So what is a chupacabra? Well, a chupacabra is a legendary creature in the folklore of parts of the Americas, and it was it was purportedly 
uh, first sighted in Puerto Rico in 1995. And interestingly enough, the uh, chupacabra is said to attack and drink the blood of livestock, most especially goats. And what's what's interesting about this film is the chupacabras in the film are basically tigers with eagle's wings or creatures that look like tigers with eagle's wings. But there are some artist renditions of the chupacabra that make them look more like lizards creatures. But it's interesting because it's not just in Latin America where sightings of the chupacabra have been reported. They've been reported as far north as Maine, interestingly enough, and as far south as Chile, and even outside the Americas and countries like Russia and the Philippines. And all of the reports have been anecdotal and have been regarded as uncorroborated or lacking evidence. But in the context of this film, the chupacabras are native to Mexico, and there are some hunters who are looking to track this creature down for scientific purposes. So the plot of Chupa follows very much the same plot of films like E.T. probably most especially, but also some films that tried to copy E.T.'s formula like Mac and Me and Harry and the Hendersons and the like. So eventually this this Chupa is discovered by Alex, and when it's discovered by Alex, no one exactly seems to believe him. But he does have some allies in his cousin Luna, who's played by Ashley Ciara, as well as his non-English-speaking country uh, cousin, Memo, who's played by Nicolas Verdugo. And they have a grandfather who's known only as uh, Grandpa, and he's played by uh, Damien Bichir. And the people who are hunting this chupacabra are headed by an American by the name of Richard Quinn, who's played in this movie by probably the most recognizable person in this film, Christian Slater. So I did like some of the elements of the film, particularly where Alex, who's not very familiar with his Mexican extended family, begins to assimilate more into Mexican culture and learn a little bit more about his family, his heritage, and ultimately himself. And the chupa in this film, who is a child, is cute and certainly very well rendered in CGI, probably even more so than Cocaine Bear. And that's saying a lot because the CGI on Cocaine Bear was generally pretty good. But I did get into this film, even though it was a bit more predictable than I, I probably... Well, it was more predictable than I would have expected in terms of the fate of the Chupa and how he befriends this young boy. I actually wish there was more added to the end because you're introduced to Alex as he's struggling through middle school. And I think most of us have been there and especially where he's ashamed of his Mexican heritage being in a largely white city. In this case, it's Kansas City, Missouri, which I don't think is a particularly white city, but it's not. But I guess according to this film, which takes place in 1996, there aren't a lot of Latin Americans there, which may or may not be true. But I would have liked to have seen him come back and sort of handle his middle school days um, with a, a, a sense of probably gratitude as well as his growing in terms of his character. The movie did cut off right before that, but I think the movie is serviceable and I do think kids will like it. I certainly liked it for what it was. I didn't think it was an ET ripoff, but I think it could have deviated a bit more from the ET formula than it could have, which is why I give Chupa my rating of a checkout. I think its strengths are not so much the science fiction of the family elements as much as it is the finding oneself as well as understanding yourself when it comes to your heritage. And I did like some of the fantastical elements tying into the Mexican culture, but I did think that the scientists who were, or the hunters who were coming after the Chupa probably could have been more original and maybe a little less villainous than they ultimately were. But 
for for Chupa being what it was, I did like it. I just didn't think it was great. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is We Have a Ghost. This is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on February 24th, 2023. So I'm a couple of weeks late to review this, but I didn't get actually to review or see this film in its entirety before I came to um, host this episode. But the movie is directed by Christopher Landon, who has previously directed a number of films, uh, some found footage movies, but he directed uh, Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. That's the fifth film in the Paranormal Activity uh, franchise, as well as one of the only ones I didn't see. He directed both Happy Death Day movies, which I thought were relatively decent. And he directed a film in 2020 that was called Freaky, which is, as far as I could see, a straight-up horror film. I don't believe I've actually seen Freaky, but I could be wrong about this one. But the movie We Have a Ghost is one that's probably a bit more of a family movie with some horror elements than I would ultimately think, than Christopher Landon has ultimately directed. But it's very good. And it's about a ghost by the name of Ernest who haunts a home of a new family who just moved in, which whose uh, patriarch is Frank Presley, who's played by Anthony Mackie. He's married to Melanie, who's played by Erica Ash, and they have two sons. They have the eldest introvert son, Kevin Presley, who's played by Jahi Diallo Winston, and younger brother Fulton Presley, who's played by Niles Fitch. And Kevin is, as I said, very introverted and also adjusting to not only being in a new neighborhood, but also being in a new house for his family that's not actually a new house. It's very spacious, but it needs a lot of renovations. And much to Kevin's surprise, as he's exploring the place, he finds a ghost by the name of Ernest, or at least that's the name that's on the ghost's bowling shirt. And Ernest is played by David Harbour. And I will see anything that David Harbour is in. I, he's probably one of my new favorite actors. I really like him in the show Stranger Things, which I won't review for you on this show because I review movies, not TV shows. But that was David Harbour's breakout role. And while he's had some missteps, like the remake of Hellboy, in which I don't think he was bad, but coming after Ron Perlman is very hard to do. He couldn't quite achieve that. But I also loved David Harbour in Violent Night, where he played Santa Claus. That was probably one of the most pleasant surprises of movies of 2022. And here he plays a ghost who can speak English, but he can't speak to the living world. Well, when he does, it comes out as muted. So he has other ways to communicate with with Kevin. And Kevin finds or captures this ghost named Ernest on his smartphone. He eventually puts it up on YouTube and his family with his father Frank's encouragement become internet celebrities as well as Ernest becoming a supernatural celebrity as well. But it also attracts the attention of 
a doctor by the name of Leslie Monroe, who's played by Tig Notaro, who specializes in paranormal activity. And you don't really know who Tig Notaro's character's side is on. And I think actually the development of her character is a little bit more of the predictable elements here. What I thought was probably the most unpredictable and probably setting itself aside from other similarly themed movies like E.T. and the movie I just reviewed before the break, Chupa, is the fact that you eventually learn why and how the the ghost Ernest died. And it's an eye-opener, actually, how he died. And it's a twist that I couldn't, that I didn't quite see. And then when the way he dies actually comes back to figuratively and maybe even literally haunt the Presley family. It's really good uh, cinema that happens at the last quarter of the film. And the ending was a little bit of a disappointment, just the very ending of it. There are some things that aren't uh, explained particularly well, but what I did love about the film was not only David Harbour playing the charismatic ghost, but I also really liked... First of all, Jahid Diallo Winston's performance. I thought he was probably the anchor of this film who grounded this film very well. He also has a good friend and a love interest in an Asian-American girl who lives next to him named Joy Yoshini, who's played by Isabella Russo. And I thought the two of them had great chemistry together. And when the two of them and Ernest, the ghost, Uh, begin to conspire and try to evade government forces. I thought those scenes were also very good. But I also really liked the scenes between Anthony Mackie and Jahi Diallo Winston, especially when Anthony Mackie's character gets it a little bit to his head of the family's internet celebrity, and he begins to lose focus of, of what's really important. But I think it's in a way that is realistic and also doesn't set you up completely against Anthony Mackie's character because Anthony Mackie very much like other actors like Kevin Bacon is a genuinely likable guy, but he can play unlikable very well. And I think this is probably the best example of him on film straddling the line between unlikable and likable very well. At first you begin to think he might be an antagonist, but eventually there's actually one speech he gives to his son, Kevin, which almost gets you more on his side. And I think that happens towards the last quarter of the film. So there was a lot about this film that I loved. I did think the subplot about the government trying to capture Ernest is has been something we've seen before, but there were a lot more original elements that set this movie apart from other similarly themed family movies, and every member of the Presley family convinced me that they were a real family, which is why I give We Have a Ghost my rating of a marginal knockout. I think it's a film with a lot of imagination. I think it uses its special effects very well, but it's also a very well-written and poignant film when it needs to be. It certainly knows when to breathe, and it also knows how to make their characters, whether living or dead, very dynamic. So I really enjoyed We Have a Ghost. I wish I had reviewed it sooner, but I'm reviewing it for you now, and I do think it is definitely worth checking out on Netflix. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this film show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of April 10th through April 14th, 2023. And I'm going to start with movies that are subject to being released in theaters and maybe even on streaming. 
On April 10th, there's one film that's coming out that's called Second Chances. And this is coming out on a Monday. It may be in limited release. And it's a movie about a 21-year-old thrift shop worker who covertly works to reunite a couple after discovering a torn-up love note in an old handbag. The movie stars Allison Cristofaro, Thessa Loving, and Paige Crete, amongst other people. I don't recognize any of the actors in this film, so it's likely a film that might also be released on streaming, but it's been in the festival circuit for a while, so take just uh, be sure to look out for Second Chances. I don't know if I'm going to be reviewing this film, but I'll look out for it. It certainly sounds like a very appealing film. On April 11th, there's a movie that's, uh, that's called The Law of Tehran. This is a film that, despite being released for the first time in the United States, it's actually a film that was probably made in Iran, and it is directed by Saeed Rostayi. It's about a drug lord after, after whom who the police are after, and his name is Nasir Kakzad, and when they finally manage to catch him, he tries whatever he can think of to escape and save his family. I'm not automatically on the side of a drug lord, but I'd be willing to give this movie a chance. The movie stars Payman Mahdi, Navid Mohammed Zadi, Parinas Izadyar, and Farhad Aslani. So, all Middle Eastern actors. This is a film that I might see. I'm not guaranteeing whether or not I will see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. On April 12th, which is a Wednesday in 2023, there are three films that are subject being released in theaters. There's one that looks like an American film, one that is Polish, and one that is a documentary. So it's unlikely that these films will be released in a theater near you, but you might see them on streaming. The American film that's coming out is an indie film that's called Beautiful Disaster. This is about a college freshman by the name of Abby who tries to distance herself from her dark past while resisting her attraction to a bad boy whose name is Travis. The movie stars Virginia Gardner, Dylan Sprouse, who is one half of the Sprouse twins, Dylan and Cole Sprouse, who were in the movie Big Daddy. They also had recurring roles on the show Friends. And uh, Dylan is doing this without Cole, so kind of interesting there. Um, this is a movie that looks like a film that will probably pass me by. If I'll, if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but I don't have high expectations for this one because this sounds like a Nicholas Sparks novel after which I've seen countless adaptations. The Polish film that is subject to being released in theaters on April 12th is a film that's called Kryptonym Polska. Let me see if the description of this film is in English. Sure enough, it is. It is about uh, Stasek, who is a man who lives in Bialystok and is a member of the Radical Youth Association, abbreviated as ZMR. He is not a, a radical himself, but belonging to nationalists gives him strength and a sense of purpose. And, um, yeah, there's a charismatic leader, and I guess he's trying to escape this uh, radical extremist group. I'm not exactly sure if this film is going to be coming out in a theater near me, but it sounds like a good uh, coming-of-age film. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the movie that's coming out on April 12th that is a documentary is one that's called The Plains. And this is a movie about a man in his late 50s who every evening commutes home at the end of his working day in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, which is in Australia. So this is a documentary, so it is absolutely a true story. It's directed by and written by, if you want to call it that, David Eastale. The, the reason I'm reluctant to say that a documentary is written by somebody is because documentaries aren't really written. Are they edited? Absolutely. They're edited meticulously. But I feel like real life sort of writes itself. And there's just somebody who's pointing a camera at the live action subjects. But if you want to say it's written by, there it is. But this is um, interesting. Uh it's a three-hour documentary, so it's a film that I will unlikely see for next week's show, but 
If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And now we get to April 14th, which is where we get, being a Friday, more American films that are more likely to be released in theaters near you. And this film, the first one I'm going to mention, is one that will definitely be released in theaters near you, unless you live by a cinema that has only two screens, which some people do. But this movie is Renfield, and Renfield is a movie that is directed by Chris McKay and stars Nicolas Cage as Dracula, interestingly enough. And Renfield is Dracula's henchman and inmate at the Lunatic Asylum, uh, who longs for a life away from the Count, his various demands, and all of the bloodshed that comes with them. And this is not the first time that Nicholas play that Nicholas Cage has played a vampire, but it is the first time he's played Dracula. And knowing Nicholas Cage, he goes all out to play these characters. And I do have the feeling that Nicholas Cage, especially considering that he has been working continuously over the last 20 years, is going to make a comeback with some film. I don't know if it's going to be this film, but it's definitely a film that I will see. I will give it a chance, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. And I forgot to mention this, but Renfield himself, the character, is played by Nicholas Holt. And the movie also co-stars Aquafina and Ben Schwartz. So it looks like a film that could be scary and funny simultaneously. Uh, it's it's a film that definitely looks uh, very interesting. And Chris McKay, I actually know from a lot of the other films on which he's worked. He's worked actually on the Lego movie and the Lego Batman movie, the latter of which he directed. And both of those films were a lot of fun. This film looks like fun, but it doesn't. <laughs> it looks a lot scarier than the Lego movie was, which is to say that Lego movie was not scary. But Renfield is a film I definitely will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 14th is a film called The Pope's Exorcist. And this is a film that I believe I have covered on what's coming up next a few weeks ago. But this weekend is when it will come out in theaters nationwide. So this is actually inspired by the actual files of Father Gabriele Amorth, who was chief executive, excuse me, chief exorcist of the Vatican. Yeah, the Vatican has an exorcist. Didn't know that. But the Pope's exorcist follows Amorth as he investigates a young boy's terrifying possession and ends up uncovering a centuries-old conspiracy the Vatican has desperately tried to keep hidden. Now, on the one hand, the movies about exorcisms, of which there are more than need be, do not live up to the exorcist. Not even the Exorcist sequels and spinoffs have lived up to The Exorcist. So I don't have high expectations because of this film, but it's interesting because Russell Crowe plays Gabriele Amorth, and the movie also co-stars Danielle Zavata, Alex Aso, and Franco Nero, who plays the Pope. What Pope does he play? I don't know. He's just credited as the Pope. It could be John Paul II, it could be Pope Francis, it could be any of the popes that came before John Paul II, I don't exactly know. But The Pope's Exorcist is a film I will likely see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And we don't have a lot of time, so I'll just keep going down the list of films that are subject to being released in theaters on April 14th. And there are a number of very interesting ones that are subject to being released. One is called The Perfect Addiction, or the movie is called Perfect Addiction. There's no Z, uh, there's no the there. But anyway, Perfect Addiction is a film about a successful boxing trainer who discovers that her boyfriend... So the boxing trainer is a woman that kind of flips the expectation there, but she discovers that her boyfriend, a reigning champion has been cheating on her with her own sister. Ooh, man. Ooh, that's really bad. Infidelity is one thing. Infidelity with a family member. Ooh, that is just asking to get your balls kicked in. But anyway, she sets out to get revenge by training the one man capable of dethroning him, his arch nemesis, Caden. So this movie has nobody particularly 
famous in terms of being a household name, but the movie stars Manu Bennett, Ryan Bowne, Ross Butler, and Alex Zerwinski. But the boxing trainer herself is played by a very attractive actress by the name of Kiana Madiera. And the reason I say she's attractive is not only because she is, but I'm also, um, you might be thinking to yourself, why would somebody cheat on their girlfriend if she's attractive? Well, being attractive does not make you infidelity proof. Look at Princess Diana, Christy Brinkley, Halle Berry, Jennifer Aniston, Elizabeth Hurley, Eva Longoria Parker. What do they have in common? I, I shouldn't say Eva Longoria Parker. She's now back back to being known as Eva Longoria. But they're all attractive, they're all rich, and they've all had messy divorces because their husbands have cheated on them. And it's a stupid thing to do, but it does happen. <laughs> it won't happen to me, but I'm just saying it's it's something that does happen in real life. So Perfect Addiction is a film that I cannot guarantee will be in theaters, but if it is, I'm checking it out, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. There's another more lighthearted film, which is called Mafia Mama, and this is a comedy that stars Tony Collette and Monica Bellucci. And Tony Collette in this film plays an American mom who inherits her grandma, uh, grandfather's mafia empire in Italy. And guided by the firm's consigliere, she hilariously defies everyone's expectations as the new head of the family business. So Tony Collette is Australian. She might have some Italian ancestry. In fact, Collette might be Coletti in Italian. And actually... You would definitely expect that Australia would have British immigrants, which they most certainly do, and natives there of British descent. But there are also a number of Italians who also have populated Australia over the last few decades. And I think Tony Collette probably comes from a line of Italian Australians as well. So it's not entirely far fetched that she would, or somebody of her descent would inherit a mafia empire. It's a bit contrived, but I don't know exactly the rules of the, um, the mafia or whatever you want to call them, but it does look like a very funny film. It's a film that I likely will see. And I'll let you know what I think. Maybe not on next week's show, but on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.